Topic of the talk today is contemplation or mindful contemplation of postures. And this contemplation of postures is one of the aspects of a mindful contemplation of the body. There are several items that come under this heading. And the first one is mindfulness of breathing. And the second one is mindfulness of postures. Now, the instructions that Satya the Buddha has given in this regard, as we can find in the Mahasatipatthana, in the Satipatthana Sutta, as well as the Mahasatipatthana Sutta, are rather short. And I'm quoting, again, monks, nuns, lay retreatants, when walking, one knows I am walking. When standing, one knows I am standing. When sitting, one knows I'm sitting. And when lying down, one knows I'm lying down. Or one knows accordingly however one's body is disposed. Now, when we look at certain of these instructions, then there's mention of four postures that's well known. The Pali term for postures is iriyapatta. And so the first one is walking, then standing, then sitting, and then lying down. Those four postures are, at least in the text, arranged in order of the more active walking meditation and then gradually going to a more more refined and passive posture of lying down. Now, when we contemplate certain the postures, then this is a way of maintaining continuity of our practice, continuity of mindfulness in the course of a day. Now, rather than giving explanations first on the walking meditation I will start certainly with the standing and then say just a few things about the sitting and then that lying down and then finally we'll talk about certainly the walking meditation now knowing one's certain posture is is known as, or you know, there's a term for this, as you know, proprioception, namely the ability to sense the position, the location, and the movement of the body and its parts. And when we you know, reflect about the different postures that we assume in the course of a day, there's many different things to be known. Even if we're sitting, we're not certainly sitting in one standard way. So at times, ideally, we sit 
with an upright satyam back and satyam then the body is still and relaxed but is this really happening all the time obviously not so there will be you know those times when let's say sloth and torpor is prevalent and this then will have an impact a direct impact on our posture and the posture at that point will be slouched there you go or it could be that at a particular point in the practice and it's just happening naturally as we're observing the rising and falling movement of the abdomen or you know, some other you know, prominent object then gradually without us knowing it right away gradually slowly slowly you know, the body starts leaning to one side more and more and more and more and uh, yeah, sometimes one might uh, uh, even have one, one might have to worry about suddenly uh, falling over so that's another uh, possibility and suddenly then you know, there are all sorts of movements uh, that uh, might uh, take place in the course of the sitting uh, meditation. And one might uh, find uh, that uh, the body is circling for a little bit or uh, swaying forwards, swaying backwards, or uh, sometimes maybe even shaking or jumping and certain uh, things like this. So, uh, knowing postures is a way of uh, carefully observing and knowing that you know, the posture that our body happens to be in. Now, this proprioception will you know, help us to. You know, with the body during its natural activities. In other words, it will help us to be mentally anchored in the body and not carried away by various thoughts and ideas. Now, by being mindful of certain postures, our attention is on you know, the body, and certainly this thing will help you know, to control and certainly to reduce the distraction of you know, the mind. Now, this mindfulness of certain postures has been uh, referred to in different certain passages from you know, different certain works. And for instance, in the Majima Nikaya, its first certain volume, section 21, mindfulness of postures is recommended as a way of overcoming fear. And the relevant passage in this context is as certain follows, namely from the Bea Berawa Sutta. 
the uh, discourse on fear and uh, dread. So I'm quoting uh, the translation by uh, Venerable Nyanamori and Bhikkhu Bodhi. And while I dwell there, so this is the Buddha uh, speaking, uh, dwelling there in orchard shrines, in woodland shrines, or uh, tree shrines, a wild animal would come up to me, or a peacock would knock off a branch, or the wind would rustle the leaves. I thought, what now if this is fear and dread coming? I thought, why do I dwell always expecting fear and dread? What if I subdue that fear and dread while keeping the same posture that I'm in when uh, it comes upon me? So what the Buddha is recommending here is rather than getting totally overcome by fear to boldly face it. And so if the fear arises in the standing posture, then to address it in the standing posture, to maintain that standing posture. If the fear arises during the walking posture, then to maintain the walking posture until one has overcome the fear. And so if the fear arises during the sitting posture, then again boldly to face it during the sitting posture until one has overcome it. And the same thing also goes for the lying posture. So basically, uh, boldly uh, facing the fear rather than uh, running away from it, rather than uh, giving in to it. Now, in the Majjhima Nikaya, we find another passage that recommends a mindful contemplation of the four postures to avoiding desires and discontent. And the passage is, when a retreatant abides thus, if his or her mind inclines to walking, one walks thinking, while I'm walking thus, no unwholesome states of desires and discontent will beset me. So, the idea here is that if one is engaged in proper walking meditation, then there will be mindfulness from moment to moment to moment, and the presence of mindfulness then will prevent those unwholesome mental states, namely desires or covetousness and discontent to arise. Now, the Itiwutaka speaks of the four postures as a way of overcoming the five hindrances. And there's yet another passage that also says more or less the same thing, and we'll get to this in a little while. So, one can then 
intentionally use uh, or, or when difficult mental states arise, then to address them in the respective posture. Now, what one might also want certainly to do if, for instance, some fear has arisen and it is still somewhat mild, then one might intentionally take up a fearless posture, a posture of courage, so sitting very upright, and that then might have an impact on the mind and certainly then might help to drive the fear away. The same thing goes if one is overcome by, let's say, sadness or depression, then one might intentionally choose to sit in an upright way rather than sitting in a somewhat slouched way. Now, a mindful contemplation of the standing posture may occur when, or we might use this, when we are standing in a place for a certain while. So this could be a while at the end of one path in the walking meditation. So then we're standing there, we take the standing posture itself as an object, we focus our attention on the most prominent sensations in the feet, and then we label this as standing, we observe those sensations carefully, and we try to know the nature, the characteristics of those certain sensations. And when doing the standing meditation for a longer period of time, then gradually the weight of the body will come to bear on the feet and certainly with this pressure increases greatly and maybe some pulsing sensations will be there some heaviness hardness might certainly arise so these are all different sensations that one might want to pay attention to now um if one happens, if the mind is overcome by sloth and torpor, the sloth and torpor is rather um, strong, overwhelming, then one might choose you know, to assume the standing posture for 10 you know, to 15 minutes. And, so, and then a while, in that certain standing posture, all sorts of sensations come up, and certainly then to be mindful of those. Now, in terms of the sitting posture, so just the posture itself, 
we might at times pay attention to how our body is placed. And so whether it is placed in a very upright and relaxed and still manner, or whether it's maybe upright but the body is somewhat stiff and maybe at the same time still, or whether the body is leaning one way or another, whether the posture is, there's some slouching happening, or maybe uh, one is leaning, force of the body might be swaying forwards, uh, uh, backwards, and so on, and so forth. And so, to simply be aware how one's body is suddenly disposed during the sitting meditation. Now, you don't need to do this all the time, but on occasion. And then, if you go for this, then label it accordingly and then carefully observe what the posture is actually like and know it. Now, in the course of our sitting, our meditation practice, we are likely to experience different um, ways of or different postures in uh, in the sitting, and so to keep an eye on this, it's just one more indicator that it can tell you where your practice is at, or at least can serve as a reference point to later on remember, oh, during such and such period in my practice, the posture was so and so, and maybe also other experiences were such and such. Or it could, just to add, from an experiential point of view, it could happen, and it actually happens, that one sits in meditation. At first the body is upright, and then after a while one finds that one's sitting posture collapses, literally collapses. The mind no longer has the strength to uphold the upright posture. And then gradually, sooner or later, one finds out about this, then resolves to straighten the back, one straightens the back, and suddenly a few minutes later, the same thing happens again, the sitting posture collapses again. And then one again straightens one's posture, and sooner or later, the same thing happens all over again. And so at that point, there is a certain weakness to the body, and it's coupled with the mind, it's coupled with the meditation practice. And so if this particular situation arises, and arises not only during one single sitting, but maybe several sits in a row, then your practice wants to tell you something. And suddenly then you might as well pay attention to it. And suddenly you just keep straightening the posture again and again every time the posture collapses. Now, don't worry, this state is not going to last forever. And uh, 
as when when certain wisdom deepens certain further then you know, there's more there tends to be more strength in the mind and within certain one's posture becomes more upright and certain more stable now as for mindful contemplation of the lying posture well the instruction is when lying down, no one knows that one is certainly not lying down. And however, you know, in the Mahasi tradition of Vipassana meditation, you know, do we recommend to practice in the uh, lying posture? Not really. At least not at the beginning. Because of the obvious danger of falling asleep. Now, mm, later on in one's practice, if, uh, let's say, because of some serious uh, back injury or so, uh, or slipped uh, disc, one does need to uh, lie down, then mm, mindfulness of the lying posture might actually serve you quite well. And then one needs to do this in particular when the mind is at a time of the day when one knows the mind is relatively alert and fresh. Otherwise one might fall asleep. And then simply to be aware of the lying posture and to be aware of the different sensations that occur in lying. So... Usually, we love to you know, spend certain or to keep the body in the lying posture. But if you know, the body is in the same posture, in the same lying posture, let's say for five hours in a row, then is it still going to be pleasant? Not really. So at that point, all sorts of you know, rather uncomfortable you know, bodily you know, sensations might arise. And certainly then, you know, if one does certainly align meditation over an extended period of time, you know, then to pay attention you know, to you know, this. Now, the Buddha you know, recommended in the Majjhimanikaya that one lie down mindfully on the right side, so take up the so-called lion's posture, and keeping in mind the time to wake up. So keeping in mind the time to wake up is nothing other than setting one's internal alarm clock. Now, if you practice this if you do this on a regular basis so every time you go to bed just before you fall asleep you, know, you, you know, resolve okay you know, tomorrow morning you know, let me wake up around so let's say at certain you know, uh, four o'clock then you know, even without relying on that mechanical or digital you know, alarm clock of yours you might find that naturally you know, you wake up at uh, the predetermined time now, it might not work right away, but if you keep trying this, then it might certainly work. Now, in Lumbini, we have discussed on one occasion why the Buddha might have recommended that one lie down mindfully on the right side. And one suggestion 
that Sapna was uh, um, made was because lying down on the right side, you know, the heart is free you know, to do its work. And so, you know, if you lie down on your left side, you know, then you know, there's a certain pressure you know, being uh, exerted onto you know, the heart. But, as we all know, you know during you know, the night work, are we going to you know, sleep all the time on the right side? Not. So, modern scientific research tells us, and correct me if I'm wrong, that on average, one turns over 12 to 14 times during a single night. Now, this mindfulness of lying down might also help to or the mindfulness certainly while you're falling asleep might certainly help to improve the quality of one's sleep and one could just as an experiment try to follow Mahasi Saido's or follow implement Mahasi Saido's instruction namely to know whether one fell asleep on a, a rising movement of the abdomen or a falling movement of the abdomen. Now, some meditators have tried to do this and have found it to be very difficult, a very extremely difficult uh, exercise. But you can give it a try you know, once in a while. So, this much in terms of mindful contemplation of the standing posture, the sitting posture, and the lying posture. So, this covers three out of the four postures. Now, the instructions that the Buddha has given us in the Satipatthana Sutta, sorry, and do not certainly speak only of those four postures, including the walking, but also say to be mindful of whatever posture, whatever way the body is disposed in. And so, obviously, there are a number of other secondary postures. And you might certainly have heard and that, or read, and it's part of Venerable Mahasi certain basic meditation instructions, Venerable Ananda, just hours, just a few hours before you know, the beginning of the first Buddhist synod, where he was supposed to you know, be the main reciter of all you know, the texts, all the discourses that the Buddha had given. But he had to be an arahant for this, and he was only a stream enter. So during that night preceding that first synod, Elder Ananda practiced really hard. So, he did walking meditation up and down, up and down, for many hours of that night. However, without gaining the Dhamma. 
Finally, he realized this is not working, and he decided to rest and to take up a different posture. So, as he was sitting down on his bed or sleeping resting place, and then in the process of just about to lie down, just about of placing his head on the bed or the pillow, it is at that point that he is said to have gained arahantship. Now, that posture, is it, does it qualify as walking posture? It doesn't. Does it qualify as standing posture? It doesn't. As sitting posture? Neither. Nor as certain lying posture? Not yet. And so, so it's an intermediate, it's a secondary you know, posture, and certain you know, one uh, that also needs to be mindful of uh, those. Now, maybe it's in order to widen the scope of your mindfulness in terms of going to bed and waking up in the morning, you might really make this or turn this into well, explicit exercise of mindfulness so that you really pay close attention to this entire process of sitting on the bed and then gradually lying down and suddenly then assuming a proper comfortable posture in bed and suddenly then observing the rising and falling movement of the abdomen and suddenly then if you're lucky you know with whether you're falling asleep with the rising or with the falling and then mm, the next morning, to be equally mindful of this entire process of waking up. So, are you waking up to a thought? Or are you waking up to some external sound? Maybe the boiler, the sound of the boiler, or someone else uh, maybe opening or closing a door. Or are you waking up to maybe some sensation of hardness somewhere in the body. So those certainly are things certainly to be considered. And then as you're gradually waking up and certainly before you get out of bed, then check how your body is certainly placed in the bed. Uh, its posture there, and now briefly check uh, what are uh, the prominent sensations in the body. Once you've done that, then uh, um, then not just jump out of bed, but certainly rather slowly and mindfully paying attention to every single uh, movement uh, you can get out of foot in bed, and certainly then you start certainly your day. Now, uh, the main focus of this talk was supposed to be on walking meditation, but uh, we're having a little time left, so... <laughs> Some might 
certain question whether you know, the Buddha uh, actually practiced walking you know, meditation himself and certain uh, you know, whether his disciples you know, practiced uh, walking meditation or not. Mm, there are a number of passages in the Diga Nikaya, in the Samyutta Nikaya, even in the Terat Nikata, Majima Nikaya, that Angutra Nikaya, Udana, that describe situations in which the Buddha by himself, all alone, or at times even with a larger group of disciples, practiced walking meditation. So there are passages that describe the Buddha practicing walking meditation during the night and also he practiced walking meditation during the day. Now, one such example is from the first volume of the Samyutta Nikaya and certainly section 107 and there it says on one occasion the Blessed One was dwelling at Rajagaha in the bamboo grove the squirrel sanctuary then when the night was fading the Blessed One having spent much of the night walking back and forth in the open washed his feet entered his dwelling and lay down on his right side in the lion's posture with one leg overlapping the other mindful and clearly comprehending having attended to the idea of rising now on one occasion the Buddha is certainly reported to have practiced certain walking meditation with a group of his most senior disciples, and each of his senior disciples then had with him other younger disciples. So it must have been a very large congregation of monastics practicing walking meditation. Now, please do realize from the very beginning that walking meditation is not this mindful walking meditation is not the same thing as a casually walking down a street in an absent-minded manner, being totally um, involved or immersed in some thinking. So, the instructions that certainly the Buddha has certainly given is when mm, walking, one knows I'm walking. So the instruction is rather short. And certainly thus it needs to be fleshed out. One clearly needs to understand uh, what is certainly meant by this. Now, there is an additional passage, namely from the 35th collection of the Samyutta Nikaya, 
that speaks about being devoted to wakefulness and suddenly then practicing walking meditation back and forth in sitting, so alternating walking and suddenly sitting through the first watch of the night and then during the second or middle watch of the night sleeping and then during the third watch of the night again one practices walking and sitting and while practicing walking back and forth and sitting one purifies the mind of obstructive states now the expression obstructive states is an expression a reference to the five hindrances so from this we get a new new aspect at least one instruction where the Buddha recommends to be mindful of mental states of mental of the hindrances if and when they occur during one's walking meditation. Now this contrasts to some extent with modern instructions, meditation instructions on walking meditation that for the most part stress being mindful of the most prominent sensations occurring in the foot while one is walking. Now I'm not saying that this is the only instruction regarding walking meditation. There is the additional instruction that if, for instance, during the walking meditation a lot of thinking is occurring, that one briefly stop walking and while standing one focuses one's sudden attention onto the thinking and suddenly then is mindful of this, labels it accordingly, observes it, knows its nature and then once the thinking has subsided then one resumes the walking meditation. You don't continue the walking, you stop, yeah. observe the thought, thinking until it stops. If you know, the thinking is really interfering with one's sudden walking meditation. So if it's just a minor you know, thought, then never mind, let it go, don't even pay attention to it. Uh, no. Now, in the Anguttara Nikaya, it's fourth volume, section 87, we find a passage in which the Buddha gives advice to Elder Mahamogalana on how to overcome sleepiness, drought nodding. And certainly he speaks of, if I remember correctly, eight or nine different ways of overcoming the nodding head and one instruction after another. And if the early instruction fails, then the next, then he gives another instruction. So he says, if it, namely the nodding, pass not, then with senses withdrawn, the mind not outward gone, should you fix your thought on the alley walk, conscious of its front and back, and maybe as you bind so, that drowsiness will pass. So in other words, 
If you know, there's a lot of you know, sleepiness in the sitting meditation, then you know, to get up, to change one's posture, and certainly to do you know, walking meditation with you know, practicing good restraint of the senses or not looking you know, around and keeping one's attention on you know, the walking you know, path. Now, there is you know, the example of you know, the nun Chittateri, who you know, was the daughter of a leading citizen of Rajagaha, who later you know, then became a nun and entered the order under Pajapati Gotami, the stepmother of the Buddha. And then, while climbing up Gijakuta, she then attained Arahanship. So you can take this as one example for a person who gained Arahanship practicing walking meditation. Patisambhida Magga, apparently, according to Venerable Analayo, but I have not yet found the correct passage, apparently states two cases. One of a monk practicing walking meditation, continuous walking meditation for 20 years, and then eventually becoming an arahant, and another one, practicing this for just 16 years and again becoming an arahant. So, just to say that there is tremendous potential to the mindfulness or mindful contemplation in walking meditation or in walking. And not to think lightly of one's walking practice. And as Sadhna Venerable Sadhu Pandita has Sadhna pointed out already a long time ago, and in particular when he taught Sadhna the three month retreat here at IMS in 1984, he spoke of. Discovering the Eightfold Noble Path by you know, doing the walking meditation. So, in you know, performing the walking meditation, all of the eight path factors, if done properly, can be you know, there. As one is established in mindfulness, the three you know, path factors you know, relating to an ethical conduct, sila, are there. You know, then, you know, if one practices properly, effort will be there, right effort will be there, right mindfulness will be there, the mind will be concentrated, and so. And then one might practice uh, also when observing objects, proper aiming will be there. Yeah, so uh, right, certainly right thought or right aiming is uh, accomplished. And certainly the result uh, then comes in the arising of uh, intuitive wisdom. In other words, uh, right view occurs. So, and there's so many things to be discovered in the walking meditation. And you might, if you do your walking meditation properly, at times you might find that 
if a new development has taken place in your sitting practice and then you do proper walking meditation, you might find that same new development also taking place in your walking meditation. Or, at times, your walking meditation might be better developed, more advanced than your sitting practice, and so something new comes up, so new discovery, and then you go into your next sitting and you realize, oh, the same thing is also happening in the sitting meditation. Now, in the walking meditation, we can experience all of the insight knowledges. It is quite possible to see you know, the or to discern mentality from materiality, to discern cause and effect, and to gain a direct understanding of the three universal characteristics of impermanence, anicca, and of unsatisfactoriness, dukkha, and then the fact that formations are not the same as the self or are not satna the self. And satna, so in the course of our walking practice, we will find that our walking itself will undergo changes. So at first, at the very outset of satna, the retreat, our walking will tend to be somewhat coarse, somewhat rough in terms of movements, in terms of stepping stepping on the ground or placing the foot on the ground. And we might find that oftentimes we lose our balance, so there's some instability there. We might even find that we bump into some door frame or uh, or maybe even into a fellow yogi uh, while walking down the hallway, things suddenly like suddenly this. No. Mm, mm, then, mm, as we keep doing you know, the walking practice, we might uh, you know, pick up a few intentions, intention to lift the foot, intention to you know, maybe you know, move the foot forward, to place it down, and so on. And then gradually we might find that one single, let's say, forward movement is not just one single movement, but rather is a segmented movement and with many changes occurring there. And then we might find at a certain point that there's a tremendous amount of lightness both in the body and suddenly in the walking and suddenly sometimes meditators come and report it feels like walking on a cloud now obviously this is a very pleasant experience and a delightful experience but can you hold on to it forever Nope. So this one too you know, will change, it will pass away, and certainly will then you know, you know, give rise to you know, some other you know, experience in the walking meditation. Later on, 
we might find that even though we're not Grace Kelly, we walk around as with the gait of Grace Kelly, with utmost gracefulness. And this might come as a big surprise to some. And so then at that point, the lifting, the forward movement, and the lowering and placing is just one new continuous flow. And so at that point, does one still lose one's balance? Hardly ever. And so it is as if there's an inner force that is keeping the body perfectly upright, one is not leaning one way or the other, and even though one will be, one might be walking really, really slowly, yet one can maintain that posture in a very nice manner, and it continues to be rather graceful and delightful to observe as an outsider, as a spectator. Now, just briefly to run through the main benefits that have been associated with the walking meditation, there is certainly the so-called Chankama Sutta, the Discourse on Walking Meditation, as part of the Anguttara and it speaks of five benefits that can be derived from the walking meditation. The first one is it hardens one for traveling and brings about endurance for a long journey. So we might express this differently. It develops the stamina to go on a long journey. So by practicing your walking meditation, you'll be walking a lot, and certainly thus, this is a good preparation to go on a longer journey on foot um, and not by car. Now, the second certain benefit is that it is good for striving. So it's good to develop effort. It helps to build effort. And since, as Sapna Venerasadu Panita Bhimams of Burma explains, the walking meditation requires, more so than the sitting meditation, a double effort. The physical, the effort, the physical effort to maintain that upright walking posture and the mental effort to be with whatever experiences come up uh, in uh, the foot. And then, thirdly, this walking meditation is certainly good certainly for health. If one were to practice only in the sitting posture, then one the balance of postures would not be fulfilled, and then this is likely to result in some health difficulties. One might end up getting constipated and certain other things. Maybe also the blood circulation might certainly slow down a bit and so on. Now, this 
mindful contemplation of, or mindful walking meditation is further recommended to, since it's helping to digest food. And finally, it is said to help build a durable concentration. So these are the five advantages as described in the Anguttara Nikaya. Now, apart from those, we have other aspects. Walking meditation will help, especially done early in the morning, first thing after getting up. Let's say you haven't slept very well and you feel a bit suddenly groggy. Then it's a good idea to do walking meditation. And so this early morning walking might help to well get your body and the mind going to activate both of them and then it will be so much easier to do the next sitting meditation. So walking meditation as a way of overcoming sloth and torpor. Then we have related to what was said just a few moments ago, walking meditation as a way of balancing postures. So not to practice in the sitting only, but to ensure that there is a proper balance there between sitting and walking. Now, as mentioned at the outset of the talk, the walking meditation also helps to maintain the continuity of mindfulness in the course of a day. If we were to practice only mindfulness in sitting meditation, well, there would be these huge gaps in between the sits where the mind is probably engaged in a lot of thinking. So our mindfulness, the momentum of our mindfulness in this way would certainly drop. So by including the walking as an exercise of mindfulness, then that continuity is maintained in the course of a day. And in particular, if one is also mindful of those other postures, so not only walking, but also standing and then lying down in those secondary postures. So, as mentioned earlier on, walking meditation is a way of developing intuitive wisdom. And as we've seen, a way of developing mindfulness as well, or again, developing mindfulness and also concentration and effort. Now, to conclude, Today's Dhamma talk with an anecdote that involves Deepama. And according to the book written by Amy Schmidt about Deepama, 
apparently Deepama was doing walking meditation, intense walking meditation at the Mahasi main meditation center in Yangon, Burma. This is many decades ago. And she was so immersed in the walking meditation that it took quite a while before she realized what was happening. She felt some strange sensation, some pulling sensation at her legs, as if something was pulling her legs backwards. But she just kept doing her walking meditation, and she was so absorbed in it, and eventually she then looked around to discover that a dog was biting her and pulling in the other direction. So, uh, to conclude mm, this talk on mindful contemplation of the postures, may you engage in this particular practice wholeheartedly and uh, may it uh, lead you to the realization of the ultimate goal, namely Arhanship. And this is it for today. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.